Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. We're going to be in three passages this morning, Romans, Colossians, and 1 John. So we'll be flipping around a little bit in our scriptures as you're turning there. Many of you have probably seen the Pixar movie WALL-E. I know the kids have seen WALL-E. It's a modern parable of an ancient problem. The story of WALL-E is Earth is set in the year 2805. And it's covered with trash. It's almost uninhabitable. The Earth is, it's been basically abandoned. Because this consumerism was brought on by this mega corporation called, by and large. And so there's really no hope for restoring Earth. So they send these little robotic trash compactors called Wallies back to Earth. And there's one little Wally left on Earth. And he's lonely. And he longs for relationships. And he has one friend who's a cockroach. And suddenly, she shows up. Eve, this beautiful female robot that Wally falls in love with. And they take this adventure in a spaceship called Axiom where all the humans live as obese and selfish consumers. I want to show you a brief clip from Wally this morning. And you'll see how this illustrates where we're going this morning. So hopefully the video works as we watch a brief clip from Wally. Get the lights turned down, please. The story of Wally, simply put, is he's the last robot on Earth, and he's been doing the same thing day in and day out for over 700 years. And he's just finally at a point where he's wondering if there's more to life. When suddenly, out of nowhere, comes a probe droid named Eve, and he thinks she's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen, and realizes that how he feels about her is probably the most important thing or special thing that's ever happened to him. And he is willing to cross the galaxy uh, in order to win her heart. It gets more complicated, and there's subplots, and there's other things going on, and people have more than one agenda. And in his pursuit to win her heart, he manages to give humanity a reboot. All right. Wally. This film deals with a lot of issues. Loneliness. Disconnectedness. That desire to have a lasting permanent relationship the tricky way that we have to deal with technology the consumer driven culture of selfishness and andrew stanton from pixar he's the one that wrote the the movie wally supposedly he's a christian i don't know but he claims to be a christian and this is what he says about the movie the theme of this movie is a rational love defeats life's programming and listen to his words he says that i realized the point i was trying to push with these two program robots was the desire for them to try to figure out what the point of living was. 
I took these really irrational acts of love to sort of discover them against how they were built. I realized that that's a perfect metaphor for real life. We fall into our habits, our routines, our ruts, consciously or unconsciously, to avoid living, to avoid having to do the messy part, to avoid having relationships with other people, of having to deal with the person next to us. That's why we can all get on our cell phones and not have to deal with one another. I thought that's a perfect amplification of the whole point of the movie. Can we as Christians actually do this? Can we avoid the messy parts of life? Can we just crawl into a little shell and and get into our little technology and our little cell phones and not have any type of personal relationships with one another to be the church that God's called us to be? How do we handle some of these issues like loneliness, disconnectedness, longing for true love? And most importantly, how does the gospel answer these deep questions we're continuing this sermon series called living the gospel centered life and last week we moved into a new arena last week we moved away from the personal aspects of killing sin and and treasuring christ to more of the corporate aspect of how do we worship together as the body of christ and we're going to take it one step further this week and next week and we're going to look into this whole issue of relationships How does the gospel of Jesus Christ answer how we deal with one another in our interpersonal relationships? And there still may be a lingering question in your mind as we've been going over this for the past few weeks. Some of you may still be thinking, well, the gospel is really the good news that we give to non-believers in order to get them saved. And yes, you are true with that. But the gospel is more than just the good news that we get to get a person saved. The gospel is for us as believers, for our everyday lives. A lot of people have truncated the gospel down to a basic, simple message. The gospel is for non-believers, but once we become Christians, we move on to the deeper things. We don't really need the gospel anymore because, after all, we're already saved. We don't need the gospel in our lives. And I hope by now you realize that this is the farthest from the truth. The gospel is for Christians. We as believers need the gospel. And I want to show you two places this morning in the New Testament where this idea of the gospel being for believers is, sh- is shown. And really the question we've got to ask is how do you stay sane in your Christian life? How do you avoid legalism on one hand and, and guilt and despair on the other hand? It's through the gospel. The gospel is for Christians. It's not just the message that non-believers need to hear in order to get saved. It's the message that we as believers need to constantly hear in order to stay sanctified, in order to stay in a, in a state of, of sanity towards our relationship with Christ and with each other. It's the gospel gives us that grounding. The gospel is the bedrock of our lives. So let's turn to Romans chapter 1 and let's look at verses 7 through 17 together romans chapter 1 verses 7 through 17 this is paul's letter to the church in rome and so let's start in verse 7 to all those in rome who are loved by god and called to be saints grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ first i thank my god through jesus christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world for god is my witness whom i serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son that without ceasing i mention you always in my prayers asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. 
That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is Paul's introductory letter to the, to the Romans. And let me just ask you a very simple question. Who is his audience? Who is he writing to? It says very clearly there in verse 7, to all those who in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. He's writing to believers. He's writing to saints. He's writing to those who are loved by God. Now, he's not personally met them yet. He's been hindered from going to Rome. And really, he's on his way to Spain on a mission trip. And he wants to stop by Rome to get some, to get some missionary support. And so he's writing this letter to them in an attempt to, to get support for missions, but also to lay forth the truths of the gospel. But notice what his chief ambition is. What's his chief ambition in verse 15? What does he say? I am eager to preach the gospel. Now, that's strange, Paul. I thought your letter was addressed to Christians. Why are you so eager to go to Rome and preach the gospel to believers? I thought the gospel was only for lost people in order to get saved. And yes, it is. But Paul is eager to preach the gospel to the church. It's very reminiscent of his words in 1 Corinthians 9.16. When Paul says, woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Now, why was Paul so anxious to preach the gospel to believers? Also to, to non-believers, but to believers. Why was he so anxious to do that? Well, verse 16 and 17 tells us it because it has inherent power. The gospel has the power to save. Not only does the gospel have the power to save, the gospel has the power to sanctify. The gospel is not only for non-believers to become Christians, the gospel is for believers to remain strengthened and, 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 and matured in our faith. Now, this doesn't mean that every sermon, Paul preached a shallow evangelistic plea to, for people to come ask Jesus into their hearts. Now, the gospel is a whole lot more rich than that. I, I challenge you, find one verse in the Bible that says the gospel is asking Jesus into your heart. You can't find it. I'm not saying that we shouldn't use that terminology, but the gospel is so much more rich. It's so much more full. It's so, we could spend a thousand years delving into the truths of the gospel. And we need it. We need the power of the gospel in our lives as believers. And so Paul says, I'm eager to go preach the gospel to believers because believers need the power of the gospel. Now let's turn to First Corinthians, or let's turn to Colossians, I'm sorry. Colossians. Just turn over a few books. Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. I want to show you another place where Paul is writing to believers talking about the gospel for believers. And yes, don't misunderstand me. The gospel is for non-believers. There's no doubt about that. There's no argument about that. But that's not all of it. The gospel is for us as believers. The power of the gospel. Colossians chapter 1. Let's look at verses 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, 
Grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Now Paul's writing the introductory letter here to the Colossians. Who's his audience? Verse 2, the saints and faithful brothers in Colossae. Again, Paul is writing to Christians. And notice what he says. He says the gospel has come to them. He calls it the word of truth. He says they, they heard it. They understood God's grace. But notice what verse 6 says. It says the gospel is bearing fruit and growing. The gospel was bearing fruit and growing in their lives. It was, it was bearing fruit. It was continually on an ongoing basis producing something in their life. It was bearing fruit. And so here's the question. Is the gospel bearing fruit in your life? Is the gospel growing and bearing fruit in this church? And so hopefully by now, I just take a short detour here at the very beginning to show you that the gospel is for us as believers to be growing, to be producing fruit, to be preached to us on a continual basis. That's why every Sunday we preach the gospel from this pulpit. That's why every day we need to have the reality of the gospel preached to us, reminded of the gospel for believers. But the gospel does something. The gospel not only is the power for salvation, it's not only the power for sanctification, but the gospel actually creates a community. The gospel actually creates the church. The gospel actually births the church. It's not a message that we just share. Yes, we share the gospel. We preach the gospel. We teach the gospel. We declare the gospel. We want to see people get saved by the gospel. But the gospel also brings us together in a family as believers. Now, I want you to turn over just a few books to 1 Thessalonians. Turn over to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And I want you to look at verses 8 and 9. And I want you to see something very amazing here about what Paul says in relationship with the gospel and how it creates community. And I'm going to hopefully explain what this passage means. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 8. And I think it's on your screen, but I also want you to kind of look at it in your your text as well. 1 Thessalonians 2, 8 and 9. Paul says this, So being affectionately desirous of you, We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. Now, Paul does something very interesting here. He uses a word that shows up only one place in the entire New Testament. It's this word that the ESV translates... um, affectionately desirous of you. It's, it's really a word describing the way a parent would love their child. It's this deep, affectionate love that Paul has for the Thessalonians. It also says at the end of that verse that they had become very dear to him. So obviously Paul had this very unique bond of love, connectedness. He deeply loved this church. But notice what he says in that passage of scripture. He said, I didn't want to just preach the gospel to you. Yes, I proclaimed the gospel to you. I didn't want to just share the gospel with you, but I wanted to do something different. I wanted to do something else. I wanted to take it one step further. I wanted to share our lives with you. 
literally share our own souls. So Paul says, yes, we proclaim the gospel. We share the gospel, but we share life. We share our lives because you become so dear. The gospel created this intimate bond of fellowship between Paul and that church where the gospel came in and it saved them, but it also created this unique bond of love and affection. And so the gospel is for salvation of non-believers. The gospel is for Christians. And the gospel creates this community, this loving bond of relationship called the church, which leads me to the huge question that we're going to attempt to answer today and the rest of next week. And it is simply this, how, how do we live the gospel out in our interpersonal relationships? How does the gospel have a bearing on our relationships? Husbands, how do you love your wives? Wives, how do you relate to your husbands? Parents, how do you deal with your children? Children, how do you deal with your parents? Friends, co-workers, family members, neighbors. How, how does the gospel have a bearing on how we live our lives together as the church? Whatever relationship you happen to have, how does the gospel have a bearing on that? Now, there's one definitive answer for this. And we're going to look at it today and next week. There's one overarching definitive answer that's, that's the answer to this question. How in the world do we do it? Here's the answer. It's very simple. It's very simple to state, but it's going to take the next two weeks to unpack. Here's the answer. By practicing what the Bible calls the gospel, one another's. You'll be saying, what do you mean one another, Sean? The one another's that you see in the Bible. All throughout the New Testament, you have these one another's. Love one another. Serve one another. Pray for one another. Confess your sins to one another. Bear the burdens of one another. Welcome one another. Forgive one another. Encourage one another. Comfort one another. The list goes on and on and on. And it's easy for me to stand up here and say, let's just practice the biblical one another's. But I think it's going to take today and next week to really dive into what these biblical one another's look like and talk about some of the practical applications in our lives as believers. And we're just going to focus on one one another today. And I believe this one another is the foundation for all the other one another's. This is the most important one another. All the one another's hinge upon this one central one another. So what is the one another that we're going to look at this morning? Here it is. We are exhorted and obligated to keep on continually loving one another. That, that's it. That's the foundation. Love one another. We can all go home right now. Got it figured out, right? Love one another. Let's see in the scriptures where this one another is explained. And let's try to get a handle on what it means when the gospel calls us to love one another. So turn over to 1 John. That's really where we're going to spend the remainder of this morning. Chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. The Apostle John lays forth for us what I believe is some of the most important teaching on this whole biblical idea of loving one another. So 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. 1 John chapter 4, 7 through 11. He writes, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, 
And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. From this text, I want us to ask four questions. Four questions that emerge from this passage of Scripture I think will help us understand what it means to love one another. Here's the first question. It may seem very simple. What are we supposed to do? We'll love one another, Sean. It says right there, right? Well, let's just look a little deeper. Verse 7 Beloved, let us love one another. This is an encouragement. It's a strong exhortation. Let us love one another. But then in verse 11, notice how John changes the terminology. He says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That makes it a little stronger. It's it's a command. As a matter of fact, that word ought there is actually used of an obligation. Something that we owe. A duty to do. A strong command. We are obligated to love one another. Now, does that scare you? I thought we all talked about grace around here. We're not talking about owing something for your salvation. We're not talking about earning your salvation. We're not talking about somehow being good enough so that God can love you through your good works. What we're talking about is once you become a Christian, there is a biblical obligation here from the text that says that we are commanded, we are obligated, we owe it to one another to love. And I don't really know how to answer this except for let the scriptures, especially the words of Jesus, tell us what we're supposed to do. Jesus in John 13, 34 says this, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Now, Jesus calls this a new commandment, and we'll get to that in just a moment. It's kind of strange. Why is this a new commandment? Obviously, doesn't the Bible teach from from the very beginning that we're supposed to love one another? Why is this new? Isn't that the golden rule? We'll get there for a moment, but notice what Jesus says. This is a new what? Commandment. Jesus commands it. In other words, we have no choice whether we're going to say no to our Lord and Master. If Jesus commands it, he says, this is the commandment I'm giving to you. Love one another as a direct command. We have no choice in the matter. Now, Paul echoes this in Romans 13. Romans 13, 8 through 10, Paul almost says basically the same thing, just in a little different wording. He says this, Owe no one anything. There's no debt that you should have except for one thing. What's the one thing you should owe someone? The one debt you should have? Love one another. For the one who loves one another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this world. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, now Paul is saying here that love is a debt. It's something we owe. We owe the debt to love one another. He almost says here that it's it's the fulfilling of the law. Now again, we need to be careful here. 
We don't do this to earn our salvation. We don't do this to get into God's good graces. We don't somehow work hard enough so God will accept us and love us. This is a result of being saved by grace. It's the power of the gospel in our lives. But there is a clear obligation here. The chief duty here is to love one another. In other words, it's a non-negotiable in the life of a Christian. We have no choice whether we're going to choose not to love someone. It is an obligation. We owe this debt of love to one another. Which leads me to the second question. The first, the first question is, what are we supposed to do? Well, love. It's a commanded. We have no choice. Whether we like it or not, our Lord and Savior has commanded us to love one another. But the second question is this. Well, what does this love look like? How am, I, what, how am I supposed to be loving one another? What kind of love are we talking about? What does this look like? Because the world has a bunch of definitions of love, doesn't it? I love pizza. I love bluebell cookies and cream ice cream. Hint, hint, nudge, nudge. Whoever has the powers out there to get bluebell ice cream to Sterling. It's everywhere else in Colorado, but it's not come to Sterling. Just a side tirade there. I love the movies. We, we, we throw that word around. But let's look at John thirteen thirty four again. John thirteen thirty four, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Now, why is this a new commandment? The Old Testament commanded us to love one another. As a matter of fact, in Leviticus 19.18, we find you are to love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So this was Israel's law in the Old Testament. Love your neighbor as yourself. So why does Jesus come along and say this is a new commandment? I thought you told us back in Leviticus that we're to command it to love one another. Why is it new? Here's what makes it new. Notice the words that Jesus says. He says, we must love one another. A commandment I give you, love one another. What if he just stopped right there? Would it be gospel-oriented? How does the gospel bring to bear on this? What does he say? What's the next words in that sentence? Just as I have loved you. That's why it's new. It's a new commandment because he's saying we're to love each other in the way that Christ loved us. Now it's easy to love others that love us back, right? It's easy to love our neighbors when they do things that are nice to us. But notice how Jesus puts it in the gospel perspective. We love one another with this agape type love that Christ showed us. A self-giving, a self-sacrificing, a a self-denying type sacrificial love. Now, where was that most clearly exemplified? In the cross. Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, Rebels who do not deserve the salvation of God, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. He didn't wait for us to get our act together. He said, I'm going to love you in your state of lostness to demonstrate God's love for you. Now, obviously, we can't love each other with that depth of love because we're not Christ. And obviously, we can't die on the cross for each other. We're not called to do that. But we're to love each other just as Christ loved us. And so it's a model for us to be loving each other with that selfless, sacrificial, self-giving, self-denying type of love. 
That's a whole lot easier said than done, isn't it? Why? I'll just be honest up here. We're selfish, aren't we? I'm selfish. We want everything to revolve around us. We want to be the receivers. We want the attention. We want the accolades. We want the drama. We want the spotlight. We want the world to come to a screeching halt at the flip of the switch for us because we are the center of the universe. And yet this gospel one another, we are to love as Christ loved us. Now I remind you back in John, our main text, it's in a present active verb tense, which means we are to continually keep on loving each other. It's not just a one-time thing. It's a lifestyle. Keep on continually loving one another with this sacrificial, self-giving, self-sacrificing love. It's a lifestyle of who we are to be as Christians, and we're commanded to do it. Now, before we all get scared off into depression this morning and have this major guilt trip, because I think, I know what you're thinking, aren't you? Wow. I can't do that. That sounds very difficult. Let's answer the, first, the third question, okay? Because at this point, you're probably thinking, it's a command, I don't like commands, and it's to be done all the time, and it's to be like Jesus. I might as well throw my hands up and be hopeless. I can't do this. So the third question is, how can it be done? Is it impossible? And the answer is yes and no. The, the answer comes in verse 7. Look at verse 7 again, back in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. And this is often a pattern that John uses in 1 John. He uses this terminology. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God. He uses that all throughout 1 John. He who has been born of God. What we're talking about here is the new birth. Regeneration. The fact that we've been born again, we've been given a new identity through the gospel. God, when he saved you, he took out that heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. He raised you from spiritual death to spiritual life. He's given you a new identity. Now, here's the two things that none of us could do before we were saved. No matter how hard we tried, these were two things we could not do before we were saved. Number one, we did not have the power to love. The power to obey. We lacked any power. Why? Because we don't have the Holy Spirit in us. We we, we can do some legalistic things, but we don't have the power. We lack power. We lacked ability before salvation to obey the commands of God. We were sunk. But number two, not only did we lack the power, but we also lacked the desire. We didn't want to do it. Now, we may have been legalistic and, and we may have just tried to do some rules here and there, but at the core of our beings, we did not want. We did not desire to want to obey God. So two things were against us as Christians. We didn't have the power and we didn't have the desire to obey God. But guess what happens in the new birth? When God comes and saves you in the new birth, he gives you those two things that you didn't have before. Now as a believer who's been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, guess what you have now? You have power and you have desire. The Holy Spirit gives you the power to love and he gives you the desire to do that because of the new birth. And what John's saying here is evidence that you're truly saved, evidence that you're born again, evidence that you've experienced the transformation of the gospel is that you do love. And the converse is true. If you do not love, it's probably evidence that you are not truly born again. So how do we do this? It's because of the power of the Holy Spirit in us. This is the beauty of the gospel. 
Those of us who were previously dead in our sins, dead in our transgressions, lost and blind, God has raised to new life. He's given us the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us to give us the power and the ability and the desire to obey consistently. And guess what happens when we fail, and we will. When we fail to do that, what do we do? Do we throw up our hands and say, well, I lost my salvation, I'm no good, and I'm never going to make anything, I'm never going to amount to anything, and you're going to wallow in guilt? Do we do that? What does the gospel say? No. You are forgiven. You are accepted. You are loved by God. Go back to the cross. Find forgiveness. Get back up and move on. It's not the end of the world. The gospel's beauty is that Christ died for sinners who don't have it all together. He gives us the power and the desire to do it. And we do do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. But when we don't, we go back to the cross and find the grace the second time, the third time, the fourth time, the fiftieth time. But there's a final question that we must answer. Okay, we're obligated to love one another with this self-giving, self-sacrificial, ongoing, consistent type of love. The only way we can do this is because we've been born again. The only way we can do this is through the power of the Holy Spirit. But the final question is this. I think it's probably the most important. What's the foundation for all of this? I like to use the word, the, the term fountain. What's the fountain that we draw from in order to love one another. So let me just ask you a question. Does this type of love generate in us? Does it originate in us? Do do we initiate this type of love? We can only love because God first loved us, especially in the cross of Christ. Look at verse 10. John says it very clearly. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know, in Christian circles, we are so man-centered, aren't we? We think everything focuses upon our love for Jesus, our love for this, what I'm going to do for God. And everything's about me and what I'm going to do. And we need to step back and look at this passage of Scripture and say, no, it's not about what I do for God as much as what God has done first for me. We need to have a... God-centered view of the universe where it all starts with God. God is the initiator. God is the one on the throne. God is the one that has shown this love. Was God obligated to show us this love? I hope you say no. God was in no way obligated to show us his love, but he did so in a way that's amazing. And how is his love most clearly expressed? There's that big P word in your Bible. Maybe you have a different translation, but, but the word is propitiation. He sent Jesus to be a propitiation. Now, what's a propitiation? Let me explain to you what that is. It simply means this. God is holy. God is just. God is righteous. And he must punish sin. God must pour out his wrath on sin. God is a God of wrath. Now, don't be scared off by that term. When we say God is a God of wrath, what we're not saying is that God had a bad hair day. What we're not saying is that God's like a little toddler off in a corner crying because he, he, someone took his toys away and he's throwing a fit. We're not saying God's like Zeus or one of the pagan gods that, that throws lightning bolts at people because he's, he's just mad. What we're talking about here, when we talk about God's wrath, is it's because of God's character, it is his settled and determined opposition to sin in all of his expressions. And God has to punish that sin. 
God has to pour his wrath out on that sin. Now, God can do one of two things, couldn't he? God could say, you know what? Every single human being has sinned. They deserve wrath. And so I'm going I'm to let them burn forever and eternity under my wrath. And God would be okay in doing that. He would do us no harm. But what God did in sending Jesus to be a propitiation is he said, instead of sinners suffering my wrath for their sin, I'm going to send a substitute. I'm going to send my very son to come and absorb the wrath of God, to take upon the wrath of God. And so propitiation basically means that Jesus took upon God's wrath. Jesus absorbed God's wrath. Jesus took it fully upon him. All of God's righteous anger against sin came barreling down upon Jesus in our place so that you and I would not have to experience that wrath of God against our sin. That's why when Jesus was on that cross... In Matthew 27, 46, we hear these words, the the cry of dereliction from Jesus on the cross. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sekbathani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At that moment, Christ was being treated as the worst of criminals because all of God's anger and wrath came upon him. He was taking our sin and God turned his back upon Christ because at that moment, he was being a propitiation for our sins. Now, Think about the beauty of the gospel that we do not have to propitiate for our own sins. We don't have to pay for our sins. We don't have to absorb God's wrath for our sins. Christ did it in his love in our place as our substitute for our treachery. Who deserved to hang on that cross? You and I. But Christ died in our place. So as we start thinking about living gospel-centered relationships, it doesn't start with us. It always starts with God starts with the cross god's love for us the cross for us the holy spirit for us and then from that we're able to love one another's and once we've been empowered by the holy spirit and once we have this gospel embedded in our hearts we can begin to practice the biblical one another's and what's the primary one keep on continually as a lifestyle, loving one another with this selfless, sacrificial, self-giving love that Christ modeled for us on the cross and the only way we can do it is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you something very important that I've been thinking about over the years. You, you know, we could have the greatest ministries in the world here at Emmanuel. We could have the greatest praise team, the greatest preaching, the greatest programs, the greatest building, the greatest resources, the greatest budget. We can have all these things, and guess what? Be nothing if there's no love. If we are not a loving congregation, all that stuff means nothing. It means absolutely nothing. And there's a lot of churches, and we're probably guilty of this, to say that we're a loving church. But there's one thing between, besides saying we're a loving church and actually being a loving church. Let me read to you the words of Paul from 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You're very familiar with the love chapter, right? But do you know what comes before verses 4? We often read verses 4 and following. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. If we don't have love for one another, 
that selfless, sacrificial, giving of that love on a consistent basis is our lifestyles? Paul says right here, we're really nothing. We ain't all that. We may have great buildings, great programs. We may have our act looking like it's together, but if there's no love, we are nothing. May I remind you of what Jesus said in John 13, 35. Right after Jesus says, the new commandment I give to you is to love one another, just as I have loved you, you're to love one another. What does he say? By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you have a fish on your bumper sticker. By this, all people will know you're my disciples if you listen to Caleb. By this, all people will know you're my disciples depending on how big a Bible you carry around. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you fill in the blank, whatever we like to inflate ourselves with. What does he say? How are people going to truly know that we are Christ's? By the way, we love one another. And if there's not love, that deep, deep love of Jesus we sang about, flowing to deep, deep love for one another, whether it's husbands to wives or parents to children or friends to coworkers or, or however it translates out, Paul is saying here we are nothing. So this is the basis for all the one, other one another's. Next week we're going to look at five one another's and how they play out. But I wanted to establish the, the, the foundation here that if we don't love one another first and foremost, uh, the rest of them don't mean anything. So what I'd like for you to do this morning is to go ahead and just bow your heads. And I think it's appropriate before you think about going out here and loving other people, because that's what we're, we're hardwired to do that. Most of you, some of us are probably thinking, okay, now I've got to go out and love. Great, Pastor Sean, you gave me another command to go out and love. Before you get all hot and bothered about going out and having to love someone, would you spend some time thinking about the love of the Father for you? Because when you concentrate on Christ's love for you, that's going to motivate you to love others. If it's me-centered in what I have to do, you're going to fail a lot. But if you think about God's love for you and His perfect love for you and the cross and the glories of Christ and the deep, deep love of Christ and all these things that, we, that we've been singing about, all I have is Christ, then your love for others will flow from that love of Christ for you. So spend just a few moments this morning in prayer. And I want you just to focus on the love of the Father for you and the sacrifice of His Son and ask Him to give you the help and the strength to love others from His love from you.